up at the end of the day with three or four coolers full of fish. Now, our guys went and fished this weekend. Did y'all catch a few coolers? You did? Good. Even on days when other fishermen went home empty-handed, Sam would come in with a boatload. And not only did he have a lot of fish, Sam seemed to catch the biggest fish in the lake. Finally, after watching Sam pull cooler after cooler after cooler in from the lake of monster fish, he finally, his curiosity got the best of him, and he finally walked up to Sam and he said, Sam, I'd like to know your secret. i got to know how you're catching this many fish. Sam, a man of few words, replied, well, meet me here tomorrow morning and I'll show you how I do it. So the next morning, just as the sun was creeping up over the lake, Jake hopped into Sam's boat and they set off across the lake. About 30 minutes later, Sam turned off the engine, got really quiet, and he paddled back into a very secluded cove. It was crucial that no one else be around. Jake sat back in his chair and folded his arms and was ready to watch Sam do his thing. (laughs) Sam reached into the tackle box and pulled out a slender stick of dynamite. (laughs) He lit the fuse, tossed it into the air, and when it hit the level of the lake, an explosion happened. Water and uh, all kinds of stuff went everywhere. And sure enough, fish began to float up to the surface. Big fish, medium-sized fish, small fish, and Sam, without a word, began paddling over and netting the biggest fish and leaving the smallest ones there in in the lake. (laughs) Jake screamed, Sam, you can't do this. This is illegal. I'm going to have to lock you up. Without a word, Sam reached down into the tackle box, pulled out another stick, lit it and threw it in Jake's lap and said, are you going to sit there jabbering all day or are you going to start fishing? (laughs) You know, a lit stick of dynamite can be a good motivator, can't it? It it can make you do something that you wouldn't normally do. And it can make you do something that you're not comfortable with. You know, but one of the struggles that I have is is this. Sometimes I I know in my own life when it comes to sharing my faith, I, I read the Bible and I know that I'm supposed to do it. But the Bible never throws a lit stick of dynamite in my lap and says, and say, go do it. Does it? There's no stick of dynamite for missions. If you're like me, you've probably struggled with sharing your faith. That's probably a real struggle for you at times. For years, I would meet new people and begin to get to know them and realize, hey, you know what? I think this person is far from God. I, I don't think they really really know the God, the love, and the peace that I'm talking about. And the Holy Spirit would say to me, Jonathan, you need to share with this person about what you believe. You ever had that feeling? (laughs) It's kind of a scary feeling at times. And I had that feeling so many times, and for so long, every time I had that feeling, I would talk myself out of it. And I came up with some good excuses. And I'd tell myself, well, I... I might make a fool out of myself. I can't share what I believe. You know, I might sound like an idiot. You know what? You might. Have you ever really thought about what we believe? I mean, try this sometime. Have someone repeat back to you what you believe. So, 
let me get this straight. A virgin gives birth to a guy who was God, but only part of God, but still completely God, but man also. And he lived a perfect life, so people killed him. And he floated up into heaven, and he's... Now, let me get this straight. He's coming back one day on a white horse to get us. You believe that. And what do we say? Yep. (laughs) I sure do. (laughs) You want to (laughs) come? Don't you want to be a part of that? Doesn't that sound like a, a good thing? You know, our message can sound foolish sometimes. I came up with this excuse. I might not be a good witness. You know, sometimes people have seen me do something incredibly stupid. And then it's up to me to turn around and I'm still one of the pastors at Green Pines Baptist Church. (laughs) They see me mess up, and but then I still have to be a believer. I still have to share my faith with them. This is one of the reasons why you'll never see the fish sticker on the back of my car. (laughs) Because I'm a terrible driver. I'm just not a great driver and I've been guilty of cutting people off and, you know, man, I can't tell you how many times I've been driving down the road and someone will whip out in front of me and cut me off and I've got a swerve, you know, and I'm ready to lay on the horn and I look up and there's the little Jesus fish eating the Darwin fish. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) you know, sometimes I'm not the best witness. Maybe you have messed up in the past and then really suffered and your testimony really suffered. Finally, I've used this excuse before. I've had the Holy Spirit would be telling me, Jonathan, you need to go talk to that person. They need to know about the love that I have for them. And I would say to myself, no, that can't be the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's got to be those fish tacos I had for lunch, you know. I mean, let's be honest today with each other. Will you be honest with me for about 30 minutes? There are a lot of distractions in your life, aren't there? When it comes to missions, there just are. There just are. We could find any number of demotivators when it comes to missions. When it comes to sharing our faith. I don't have enough time. I don't know enough. I don't, I don't, I don't. Life is filled with distraction. And it is in reaction to this, to the fact that there are distractions to my life and to your life, that Paul writes us. In 2 Corinthians, you can begin turning there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is going to write to us and he's going to give us two motivators. Two things that drive his life. Two things that cause him to get up in the morning and serve Jesus Christ with every fiber of his being. And so we want to look at those two motivators today. Because if you're like me, you're probably in need of some motivation every once in a while. So look with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll begin at verse 11. Paul writes this. For, uh, I'm sorry, beginning at verse 10. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Then skip down to verse 14. Paul says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In this passage, I want you to notice today two motivators. Two motivators for mission. And the first one I want you to notice is this. Number one, the fear of a holy God. Paul writes in verse 10 about this, this fear that he has in verse 10 11. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And in verse 11, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And this is a theme that you find throughout Scripture. You find this theme of a coming day when every person, man, woman, boy, girl, will have to stand before God. I want to show you a few places where you find that. Turn to Matthew 25, first of all. Matthew 25. We're just looking for this theme that is carried throughout Scripture. Matthew 25, verse 31. Says this. When Jesus is speaking and he says, he's talking about the last days, the last times. What is going to happen in the end? When all history is wrapping up, Jesus says this, when the Son of Man comes, that's Jesus, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. And he goes on and on and on for a few verses. And he talks about all of these things that the sheep have done. And then he turns to those on his left, the people on his left, who Matthew and and Christ calls the goats. And he goes through all the things that they did not do, all the things that they should have been doing that they did not do. And it's just this idea that there is a coming day where everyone, you and I included, will have to stand before God and give a record of what we did. Look also in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. John is writing. John, the apostle, is at this time, right around uh, 80, 80 or 90, is one of the last remaining disciples. He's an old man now. And he's writing, the Lord has given him a vision of the future. And so he writes to us, to tell us about what is going to take place. And in this vision in Revelation 20 verse 11, he says this, Then I saw a great white throne, 
and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Literally, when you read this in the original language, literally according to their works. (laughs) They're judged according to their works. Now, I want to be careful here. John is not, 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 hear me one more time, not saying that people get into heaven based on their works. But the fact stands that every person will have to give an account of their works. They'll have to give an account of what they did in their life, regardless of their age, their color, their gender, their socioeconomic status. Every single person who has ever lived, just to make this point very clear, everyone, there's a coming day when we have to stand before a holy God. This judgment is going to parallel our works. Here's where the rubber meets the road. And I think everyone in this room, regardless of whether you're a believer or not a believer, I think everyone really does understand the concept that we are responsible for our actions. That, that we have to give an account of what we've done. I mean, we learn this, that we find this out Early in childhood, right? Mom makes sure of it. Growing up, I didn't just play with toys. I was more like a rogue cyclone that tore through the house and uh, just destroyed everything and every toy and scattered every toy that came into my path. But regardless of how much I could mess up my bedroom, I knew that I would eventually have to clean it up. If... I was a tornado. My mom was a storm chaser. And my mom laid hands on me, so to speak, (laughs) quite a few times. I knew that I was responsible for the things that I had done. (laughs) I said at the early service, you know, more than one parent has stepped on a Lego landmine. (laughs) And, uh, you know, have tripped over toys in the house and you just learn from a very young age. If I don't eat, I go to bed hungry. You know, if I mess up a room, I've got to clean it back up. And this carries on throughout our whole life. We know that we're responsible for what we do. A while back, Chelsea and I watched a documentary called Super Size Me. And, uh, yeah, some of you have seen it. I'm already seeing the reactions. And, and in that, one thing I learned from that documentary is this. Adults aren't exempt from it. (laughs) You're still responsible for your actions. In this documentary, uh, Morgan Spurlock is the director and the main character. And in this documentary, he decides that he's going to go on a 30-day fast food only diet. That for 30 days, three times a day, he's going to eat at a particular fast food restaurant. He's got to try everything on the menu at least once. 
And uh, any time they ask if he wants to supersize it, he has to say yes and he has to eat all of it. And uh, you watch this guy, man. He gets a supersized Coke, a half gallon of Pepsi, and drinks it. And, and, and then he, I mean, for 30 straight days he eats fast food. And by the end of 30 days, he had gained 30 pounds, his cholesterol had jumped 60 points, and his liver had shut down. I mean, like, fast food is, like, equal to binge drinking all of a sudden. And in 30 days, you find out that bad habits leave you in a mess. Will leave you in a mess. And so throughout our whole life, all that to say that, throughout our whole life, we know that we're responsible. That there are causes and effects, right? I know that... If I don't put gas in my car, then one day I'm going to be stranded. And it's the same thing with life as a whole. It's the same principle. That one day we will have to give a record for the things that we do. It's obvious that we're responsible for our actions. What we really need to realize is this. That at the end of life it will not be our mommy waiting for us with a wooden spoon to spank us for a messy room. Nor will there be a fitness trainer, like the guy in Supersize Me, to get him back in shape. No, at the end of life, we will have to stand before a God who is perfect. Who sees everything that we do. He knows our actions and our motivations and nothing is hidden from His sight. Paul is so convinced of this truth that he reminds us, don't waste a day. He says in verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Don't waste a day. Today might be all that you have. He tells us how we're to live in response to this coming judge. Persuade others. You see, most people spend their lives running from God. And they, they run unbelievably. Most people spend their life running from a God who wants to love them. They spend their entire life running from a God who wants to gather them to Himself and wants to remove them from the presence of pain. They're like the young man I read about in the news a while back. He was in a high-speed car chase. He had stolen a car... He was driving, he was involved in a high-speed chase. The officers were trying to catch him. And he kept going and going and going and trying to lose the police that were on his tail. And all the while, they're trying to catch him. Not for the theft, though. They were trying to catch him and call him and get a hold of him because the car he had stolen had a box of crackers in the front seat that had been laced with rat poison. And they weren't trying to catch him just so they could throw him in jail because he had stolen a car. They were trying to catch him to save his life. He's trying to escape judgment and his pursuers are trying to rescue him. And that is the circumstance of every person born. They're trying to escape the Lord who loves them. Paul reminds us that this coming judgment must cause us me and you, 
to chase down our neighbors, our friends, our family, and warn them. The thought of a future without them should motivate us to give ourselves to win them. If you need motivation to share your faith, wake up in the morning and have this thought. Today might not just be my last day, it might be the last day of the people next door. Do they know what I know? Fear of a holy God. That's the first motivator. Knowing that one day we'll have to give record of our actions. But also fear of a holy God in reference to our friends. Knowing that they will have to do the same. That's the first motivator. I want you to notice a second motivator in the life of Paul. Look at verse 14 with me. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Paul writes this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. I thought about it. When I was reading that passage, I thought, how in the world can I illustrate the love of Christ? What picture could I paint to accurately depict the love of Christ? A love so strong that Paul says it controls me. It controls my life. To be honest, there's just really no way to paint that full picture. There's no earthly picture that can tell the full story. Gene, Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He paraphrases uh, Philippians chapter 2. He says this, Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of Himself. He had equal status with God, but did not think so much of Himself that He had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life. And then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death of all. A crucifixion. Reading these verses, when you read about Philippians chapter 2, and when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you realize that something powerful has gripped Paul. He has encountered a force that has caused him to rearrange his entire life. Notice the language that he uses in verse 14. The love of Christ controls. Paul is not asking, what would Jesus do? Rather, he's looking back and he's saying, what did Jesus do? And the answer to that question is that Jesus loved. And he loved extravagantly. The love was sacrificial. And that's one of the beautiful things about what I believe and what hopefully you believe here is that the God of the Bible is a sacrificial God. Christianity is the only religion that I know of that says this. Instead of saying, 
Well, you know, you need to do right and you need to do the right things to win God's approval and to, you know, you need to order your life the way God wants you to, otherwise you won't be accepted. Christianity, rather, says, instead of men and women trying to jump through hoops and walk on tight ropes of obedience, our God says, you can't make it on your own. You'll trip and fall the first step you take. Let me do it for you. Let me jump through the hoops. Let me walk the tightrope. It should be no surprise that all of the great stories are based on this storyline of a character who takes all of the burden of the world, just like Paul says, one dying for all, places it on his shoulders, and being the sacrifice for all mankind. Just go to the movies. Just read a great epic story. All of the good storylines are based on what Paul is saying. Think about it. Frodo in The Lord of the Rings carries the weight of the ring of power for all of Middle Earth. He and he alone can bear the burden to the fires of Mount Doom. He and he alone can destroy evil. It's his burden. As geeky as it may seem, and some of you will understand this and and like this illustration, actually. Only Luke Skywalker could bring balance to the force. That was for you, Heather. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) One man, Anakin Skywalker, left the force in darkness and only one man could redeem it. And you know what Paul had said years before George Lucas was thought of? As by one man, sin entered in death by sin. And so by the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. There is no new story. It is all one story. It is all God's story. You see, we long for redemption so much that we write it into every movie that we watch. Even in the recent film, I Am Legend, the entire world is dying because of a man-made virus. Does that not sound familiar? And one man, one man, Robert Neville, is immune to the virus. And he lives his entire life, day and night, developing a cure using his own blood. Does that not sound familiar? He ends up giving his life to save humanity. And we long to be redeemed so much that we write it into our fables and in our myths and in our stories and on the TV and in our books and our literature. And we end up giving our lives to things. We long for something to worship. We long for someone to love us so much that we can give everything to it. And for some people, they, they spend that love on sports and they make sports that thing that they worship. They spend every waking moment concerned about their team. And if their team does great, they're great. If their team does bad... They feel terrible. Some live for their businesses. And the love of business controls them. They work themselves to death building an empire that won't last but a few generations at best. Some even live for political candidates. And they believe that society's ills can be solved if we just get the right person in office. The only problem is that no society will ever be redeemed by a political candidate. Whether conservative Liberal, libertarian, doesn't matter. What society needs, listen to me, green pines. What society needs is to come in contact with the love of the King of 
kings and the Lord of lords. Nightdale, North Carolina, the United States needs to experience the love of Christ, the love that gives everything, the love that does not stop. Even in the deepest night and the darkest pain, it continues to pursue those who are far from God. Jesus said this when he was on this earth. He looked at the city of Jerusalem who was about to crucify him and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, so many times I would have gathered you like a hen gathering her chicks. Let me tell you today, if you're far from God, God loves you. He's not some cosmic killjoy that's waiting to bash you over the head whenever you mess up. He has been pursuing you from your first day to this. And he will pursue you as long as you live. And I, I just ask you to slow down just long enough to let him catch you. Just long enough for you to experience his love. A love that accepts you just like you are. A love that does not care what color your skin is, your hair is. Love that does not care who you are except that you need to experience Jesus. Those are our two motivations, church. Those are the two things that when we wake up in the morning, we say to ourselves, today might be it. At the end of the day, I might have to stand before a holy God and I need to make sure that everything I do today is for Him. And we need to be motivated by this fact that Jesus Christ has loved us. The Word has said that He has engraved us on the palms of His hands. It says that He knows the number of hairs on our head. It says that one day when all of this is over, that God Himself will reach out with His finger and wipe every tear from your eye. Let me ask you one question. Who was the last person who was close enough to you, who was intimate enough with you to know the hurts in your life and to reach out with their finger and wipe a tear from your eye. That is the love of Christ. That is the love that should control us and our life. Have you met that love? Let's pray.